0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and The Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of The Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is National Journal's Josh Kraushar, and welcome one and all. We are ready to discuss a number of things in the news, and in uh, I am in an exceptionally good mood, Uh, today, uh, which I will explain when we get to the discussion of the California recall. All right, maybe I'll just tell you right off the top. Um, Something happened yesterday at the California recall that is incredibly important for our politics. I refer to the fact that Larry Elder, the leading competitor, uh, to Gavin Newsom conceded the race. He did not claim fraud. He did not say it was rigged. He conceded. And, uh, the importance of that really can't be overstated. And for this, I will turn first to Damon Linker. Damon, you wrote a piece, uh, a few days ago, about the risk to our democracy from this you know discrediting of election results so are you in as good a mood as i am about this
1: uh, yes, I I, I am. I, I you know, and interestingly, that column that I wrote was itself a development of a thought that uh, I spouted in our podcast last week. Uh, I think this came up toward the end uh, of our conversation, and I said a few sentences about the great danger to our system of having. One of the parties regularly so distrust of the rules of the game for how we decide. Uh, who gets to hold office and exercise power? That this is very corrosive, and that if it happens regularly, uh, that there's a very real and serious danger that people will look for extra political means of gaining and holding power, which can uh, often involve violence. We saw a taste of that on um, January 6th, of course, and it could get much worse. So it is great that Larry Elder did that. I, I, I you know, it, it's great that he. Did did what you know, every politician uh, should and has pretty much done in American history. That's where we are now. We have to applaud the normal, but okay, let's do that. It is good. I would, as, as one minor caveat to at least start more thinking about this question is, it is interesting that larry elder did speak in the run-up to the election as if he was expecting voter fraud as if the results would not be uh would would not be valid and then he dropped it when he actually lost and this raises the question is is it the case that if unless you're donald trump and you really believe the lies are other Republicans going to adopt this as a kind of get out the vote operation, thinking kind of the opposite of the conventional wisdom surrounding the Georgia recall elections last January 5th, the day before the the horrible events in Washington? You'll recall that there were these two elections and because Trump kept insinuating that elections in our country are not trustworthy and reliable. that it, there seems to be some evidence that that slightly um, depressed Republican turnout in that special in those special elections. And it was very, very close in both races, which means that in effect, the election may have been thrown by Trump's very uh, statements about not trusting the election. And so for a short time after that, there were a lot of Republicans running around saying, including Mitch McConnell, who was saying it even before that election, geez, this sure is stupid. Why are you saying this? People aren't going to show up if they don't think the election is going to actually accurately record the vote. Well, because Republicans keep saying these things, it leads you to wonder, do they really think that... Somehow, psychologically, it will work the other way, that if Republican voters think the whole system is rigged against them, they better show up in ultra-strong force to really overwhelm the system so that the Democrats can't, you know, eat away at two or three percentage points. We got to blow it out of the water. And then, as we saw in California yesterday, actually, uh, if if the candidates are sufficiently unappealing, uh, that isn't going to work no no matter what. But it, it does make you wonder about that combination of elder talking about voter fraud and then in the end giving it up after the case. That's certainly better than uh, sticking with that lie on both ends. But I do wonder if Republicans are going to keep that up again as a kind of bizarre get out the vote operation for a party that is afraid that it is, is losing uh, electoral power.
0: Um, Josh, I'm going to ask you to pick up on that theme. And by the way, thank you for joining us again. Great to have you. Um, You know, We've got a GOP Senate candidate, Adam Laxalt in Nevada, who's already announcing that uh, he's planning on filing lawsuits early, arguing that that was the problem in 2020, that they didn't file their lawsuits soon enough. And you've got Pennsylvania Republicans toying with the idea of having a an Arizona-style audit. There are all kinds of straws in the wind about you know Republicans um, refusing to acknowledge reality and uh, and and uh, deal with the with the 2020 uh, loss and and to acknowledge that it was legitimate. Um, what's your sense of where the where things are vis-a-vis uh, democratic legitimacy, voting legitimacy, and the democrat and the Republican Party?
2: So first of all, thanks, Mona, for for having me on the show this week. Uh, I, I very much agree with what Damon said in, in that there is a performative aspect to a lot of the Trumpist candidates, the right wing candidates who are trying to appeal to their base, appeal to a growing, if not majority segment within the Republican electorate that demands their candidates recite the the, the golden oldies of, of Trump, uh, most, most prominently now uh, accusations of, of, of voter fraud and uh, The big question going forward is, can Trumpism without Trump himself succeed? Uh, There are numerous races for the Senate, a little less in the House right now, but – Numerous candidates that are in the lead or are prominent Trump endorsed candidates who are playing Trump's playbook but don't have the same charisma, don't have the same name profile, name idea as as Donald Trump himself. I'm thinking Josh Mandel in Ohio, J.D. Vance also in Ohio, Herschel Walker, who uh, Republicans are very worried could cost uh, Georgia Republicans a very easily winnable Senate seat. Uh, so you have this performative kabuki show, and I think Larry Elder exposed the the ridiculousness of, of, of it all, that he had to kind of say the right things, say the right, right lines, even as a Trump supporter, even as a pretty right-wing talk show host. But in the end, he graciously conceded uh, right away, uh, even before a lot of votes have been counted. So, you know— the. the there, there is this fascinating disconnect between what lawmakers, candidates, Republicans across the board really think and what they feel like they need to do to appease the, the Trumpian base. I've always said, going back years since Trump was elected, this is a real demand side problem within the Republican Party. It's not a lack of some pretty talented, good good Republican candidates that have run in races. I mean, Laxalt in L- L- Nevada uh, – an example of a, a the son of a scion in, in the nevada republican political party he certainly has the credentials uh, i think he's respected among a lot of establishment republicans in the state and beyond but he has to do these uh this pandering a very uh you know damaging part of the party and that's not going away anytime soon
0: yeah linda you know you see this um playing out in the um in the Virginia governor's race, where you have this, um, you know, private equity guy who got the nomination, uh, the Republican nomination, his name is Glenn Youngkin. Um, In in olden days, he would have been broadly acceptable, I guess, to the Republican Party. But these days, he's got to tiptoe around and sort of placate the Trump people by talking about election integrity, um, as if, the 2020 election was not free and fair. Um, and then also talk about other things to to uh, try to get the, you know, suburban voters that the Republicans have been consistently losing in Virginia for the last several cycles. Um, unclear whether a, a Republican, you know, in a state like Virginia can navigate those
3: shoals, right? That's exactly right. And by the way, I, I, uh, someone reached out, actually, a, a former colleague of both of ours from the Reagan years, I won't mention the name, uh, reached out to me early in the Youngkin campaign to say, Would you sit down and uh, talk uh, to Glenn about immigration? Because, you know, you really have the Reagan view <laughs> of immigration. And I think it'd be very helpful for you to sit down. And I said, well, I I want to tell you, I'm not going to get actively involved in the campaign and I'm certainly not going to endorse anybody in the campaign, but yeah, I'd be very happy to well, that was the last phone call that I received. And <laughs> I think probably what happened is somebody said, you should sit down with Linda Chavez. And they went, ah, no. <laughs> so, yeah, No, I think that, you know, Glenn Youngkin probably is a good example. I mean, he's not a crazy guy. He is a private equity guy, but everybody now feels that they have to feed the Trumpian monster. I mean, it, it, it's sort of like, you know, a, a horror movie where everybody is living in this haunted house and there's this creature in the basement that must be fed, you know, blood. And you have to constantly be feeding the monster, or the monster's gonna take over. And I think that's the way Republicans are responding to Trump. No matter how crazy he is, no matter what awful things he says. You know, I mean, as we talked about last week, you know, the fact that he was doing the, you know, Evander Holyfield uh, boxing match, if you could call it that, uh, instead of attending <laughs> Evander the, Holyfield from his wheelchair. Sorry, right. but you know I mean? <laughs> yes, I mean, please, uh, you know, that he would do that instead of commemorating the loss of the greatest loss of life of American life on, on American soil in our in the terrorist attack. It, it's just amazing. I will say something, though, about the California race that's a little worrisome. Um, if you look at the breakdown, and these are exit polls, and they w- may not necessarily hold up in the long run, but on the exit polls, 58% of Hispanic men voted to recall Newsom. That's a huge uh you know, worry. Yep. Uh, you, you've got, you know, a quarter of the vote cast in, in this election was Hispanic. Uh, they represent uh, almost a third of the electorate uh, in the state of California. So there, you know, there's something going on among Hispanics and the Republican Party and Trump um, that I think should be a, a worry to the Democratic Party. Yeah,
0: that's, uh, that's a good point. Um, So uh, Bill Galston, uh, I live in Virginia, and I got this huge eight by 10 mailer with a big smiling picture of Glenn Youngkin on it. And it said, you know, I and and then a quote from Donald Trump, I endorse Glenn Youngkin 100%. And then you look in it's very hard to see in the little small print in a dark section of this mailer paid for by the Democratic Party of Virginia. So, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, right. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they figured out that uh, they're going to go to that, to that vulnerability. But, um, but, but. It, you comment on on the Virginia race if you'd like, but I'd like to hear what you think are the takeaways from the California recall. I mean, after all, California is a two to one state registered, uh, you know, the, the Democrats have a two to one advantage in registration. So the idea that this thing could succeed uh, was always a bit fanciful. But uh, but what do you think are the are the lessons?
4: First of all, a couple of facts, Uh I show my age by believing in them. Uh, in November 2018, Gavin Newsom was elected governor with 62% of the vote, which was the highest vote share ever received by a Democratic candidate for the California governorship. Uh, three months ago, the... Uh, you know, the polls about the recall were essentially tied. Uh, Newsom went into panic mode. So did the Democratic Party. And when the dust settles, I suspect uh, that the no vote will be actually slightly higher as a percentage of the total than, than Newsom's initial victory three years ago. What this tells me is that despite all of Newsom's, Newsom's missteps and all of the vigorous efforts by Newsom's opponents to undercut him, he stands essentially where he did. If you look at the exit polls, uh, there was general public approval of his policies and his performance in most of the key areas, especially the pandemic, where more than six in ten Californians in, you know, endorsed the sorts of measures that he had controversially employed. Uh, and he located himself, as I read the exit polls, right in the center of his state. 45% of Californians said that his stance on the pandemic and what to do about it was about right. And the other 55% were divided almost evenly between people who said it was too strict and people who said it wasn't strict enough. So what he's, the people are buying what he's doing, even though it poses multiple inconveniences for many people. Uh, That said, I am actually not surprised by the statistics that Linda Chavez just cited about the Hispanic vote, because small business people have been particularly hard hit in California, Uh, and many Hispanics are small business owners or they work in small businesses, Many Hispanics live in the interior of California, which is principally agricultural. And agriculture has been particularly hard hit during this period, in part because of the drought, in part because of the governor's efforts to deal with the drought by restricting the flow of water to the agricultural sector. Uh, So I uh, you know, I I think that uh, the Biden administration is probably taking some comfort from the results in California uh, because if it's a leading indicator, it suggests that the president may well have the wind in his sails uh, as he tries to move from voluntary to mandatory measures uh, to control the pandemic.
0: Okay. Does anybody want to um, critique the progressives um, who I think in 1911 instituted this recall uh, uh, reform? So let's give them their due. Um, They were worried about big industrial interests, having uh, governors uh, in their pockets, uh, and therefore they were going to empower the people uh, to recall governors that they were displeased with, um, but the the um, standard for recalling a governor is pretty low, as we discovered, and uh, it's not that hard to do, and it costs the state three hundred million dollars or some such. Um, does anybody want to say that the progressives' uh, reform here w- might have been ill considered, or at least that that the law of unintended consequences uh, has been has been demonstrated?
4: I've been saying that for years. Yes, <laughs> I haven't changed my mind. Uh, you know, yes. I you know, I do think that I do think that most of the progressive reforms in the direction of more direct democracy uh, have backfired, and I'm willing to say that about the presidential nominating process as well.
0: Yep. Yep. Agree. Okay. Um, let us now turn to the, uh, Mark Milley affair. Um, the, uh, Bob Woodward and, uh, Robert Costa have a new book coming out titled Peril, um, that details, uh, I guess the last days of the Trump administration. And we are currently, um, embroiled in controversy about the actions of, uh, Uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, who, according to the book, um, was so worried about Trump's mental state in the uh, days leading up to the election and following it uh, that he contacted the Chinese to assure them that we had no plans to attack. and um, uh, And then he also... Uh, apparently assembled the military leaders and said, yes, the president has the power to order an attack, but don't do anything without checking with me or some such thing. Um, So, uh, Josh Kraushauer, uh, what do you make of this? Uh, What do you think about the substance? There have been a lot of calls for Milley to uh, resign, or in some cases, uh, I think Rand Paul called for him to be court-martialed.
2: So I'm I'm sort of sympathetic to Millie's position in the aftermath of the presidential election, knowing what we know uh, about Trump's behavior uh, in the aftermath of, of losing that election. But I'm also very wary that if this reporting is accurate, and it sounds like it comes from Millie himself, it sounds like this was uh, not 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 that not not pretty transparently uh, sourced to him uh, in my own read of it. Uh, his notion that he he had to go outside the chain of command. He went behind the president's back. I don't believe he even talked to the secretary of state or folks, um, you know, in the, in the chain of command to, you know, inform them that he was telling China that, uh, the, that, that, you know, the president has no intention of, of, of going to war. Um, you know, the principle of, you know, norms, hold, holding up norms, holding up standards that we've held up for so many years was a big part of our, you know, the broad criticism of, of Trump's behavior in office. And I'm not sure if it's healthy for, um, you know, folks on the anti-Trump wing of, 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 of you know, of, of things to argue that it's okay to break protocol if it's in the greater good, uh, we saw that in the in the initial days of of, of of Trump taking office, where a lot of national security officials rightly were concerned that that Trump may have been dealing with Russia, uh, that there may have been some illicit contacts or, or, you know, frankly, a whole lot worse than that. And it led to speculation, if you know, fevered imaginations that were, you know, understandable at the time. And it turned out that a lot of the the, wor- the worst fears ended up not materializing. And there were some, you know, norms and standards that got burnt in the process. I mean, I think that that's the worry here, that, you know, it's a Rorschach test of whether you think Trump's own behavior was so eg- not just egregious, but, you know, could have started a war or done something that would have been, been, been totally destabilized. It was that egregious that this had to be done, or whether Millie, the the norm breaking that Millie took, is actually the bigger threat, the bigger uh, you know disruptor to our to our way of, of handling things.
0: Damon, what what do you make of this? Uh, I, I would just remind our listeners uh, this th- that um, that uh, actually uh, Trump appointed um, Millie as uh, as uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs over. The objections of James Mattis, who was at the time uh, the defense secretary, Mattis wanted him to appoint Air Force General David Goldfine, uh, and Trump at that point was really annoyed at uh, at Mattis, and so he reached he he chose Matt he chose Milley sort of to snub uh, Mattis. Uh, just a little historical footnote there, but um, anyway. So, uh, what do you make of the of the uh, argument that uh, what? Millie did uh, was treason, and or what? Whether it was a justified precaution. What do you say?
1: Well, this is um, this brings us to kind of um, what are called uh, in certain precincts of political theory limit events where, or exceptional events where we're no longer talking about what the rule of law is so much as what happens when the rule of law breaks down. And when that happens, things get scary and dangerous. And I think that my takeaway, again, with the caveat If this is true, because it is simply reporting in this new book, uh, which I haven't actually read, I'm only reading the excerpts and or uh, quotes from it in, in reported stories, but if it is true, what we're dealing with here is a situation where the chairman of the Jordan chiefs is so unnerved by the mental state of the president of the United States that he is, in effect setting up tripwires in order to basically spark something like a military coup if needed. So it isn't, and it isn't just as you were recounting that Uh, He apparently spoke to his Chinese counterpart and said, don't worry, we're not right about to attack you, even though the president sounds like a total lunatic and he's behaving like a madman. Don't worry, that's not going to happen. He also said... By the way, he didn't say that part. No, he didn't. That's me interpolating. That's obviously what was behind the motivation of speaking to him. Um, uh, he, He also apparently, if this is accurate, said and don't worry if we're going to attack you i'll warn you ahead of time yeah that's bizarre Wh- which is which yeah. is completely nuts that's like yeah. saying if we're about to launch a strike against your country i'll give you the heads up so what <sighs> they can then launch a pre- preemptive first oh, yeah. strike against the united states that we're in we're in kind of doctor strange love territory here now yeah my take on this is that this is appalling. Mark Milley has absolutely unelected in an unelected position, a military officer, has absolutely no authority to be countermanding and anticipating countermanding the highest most grave Orders the president might give him about war and peace. Absolutely none. And if he does it, he has just engaged in a military coup. Now, the sad pathetic thing is that we as a country were in a situation where we're supposed to sort of look at this and say wow thank god (laughs) thank Mm -hmm. god there might have been the chairman of the joint chiefs willing to override the lunatic who may have launched an unprovoked first nuclear strike on another nuclear power like This again, I mean, Doctor Strange Love doesn't go even nearly this far. This this high level of real peril to speak to the the title apparently of this new book um i i i'm totally appalled now this is again this is a case you know you kind of asked me for my position what do i think of it it's all terrible You, you know i sort of said in our sarcastic tweet about this last night like yeah military coups are really bad on the other hand so is electing an imbecilic lunatic to be president and when, well, that when, you do, yeah, when you do that, you're going to end up potentially in a situation exactly like this. And so let's all of us take a deep breath, hope we never do it to ourselves again and do everything we can to make sure it doesn't happen because it's really bad.
0: Yeah. Linda, I, I see your hand up. I, I'm, I just want to um, set it up uh, this way. Um, so part of what was relayed in the book is that um, Millie had received intelligence that the Chinese were getting very nervous um, and uh, were were misinterpreting the intelligence that they were getting to believe that they were about to be attacked in a sort of wag the dog si- sort of thing for Trump to distract attention from his domestic troubles, I don't, whatever. And that he was trying to, um, he was trying to, you know, to talk them off the ledge. Um, so there's there's that piece of it. But then there's something else that I want to hear your views on. And uh, and it's this. Milley based his actions, according to what we've read so far, on his analysis of, of Trump's mental state. And he was very upset to see Trump, you know, fulminating at his aides, screaming obscenities, behaving like an imbecile, like a child. And My attitude to that is where the hell was he since 2015 when all of this kind of behavior was on vivid display for all to see? Why would he have suddenly said, you know, I think something really dramatic has happened to the president. He's lost his mind. No, he has been like this for as long as we've known him in
3: public life. What's Millie's excuse for being so uh, dense? What do you say? Well, I can tell you where he was on June 1st of 2020. He was marching across Lafayette Square uh, behind the president in his full military uh, outfit. Uh, I guess it was actually his... uh, Camouflage. It wasn't a dress uniform, um, and standing by the president while they did a photo op with the president holding the Bible upside down in front of a church that had a very small fire in the basement, not not badly harmed. It was still a bad thing that had happened, but anyway, he was perfectly happy to be used by uh, the president. Look, I think Millie has to go. I really do. Um, I, I think he has shown errors in judgment. Um, in both of those instances. He's gone from one extreme to the other. You know, there was a time during the Nixon uh, meltdown uh, when he was being impeached when uh, the Secretary of Defense, Schlesinger, uh, in fact, did something similar in terms of the nuclear codes and wanted to make sure that if Nixon were to give an order to launch a nuclear attack, that there'd be uh, a pause and some consideration. And of course, He didn't necessarily have the constitutional authority to do that, but he did it anyway. I wouldn't have been so upset, and I'm not particularly upset, that Milley called together uh, those under his command and said, look, if you get orders from the president to launch an attack, you know, I want to be informed. And there might have been, you know, that, that I don't think was improper. I think calling General Lee was improper, and what Damon talked about was appalling. The fact that he would say, well, we're not going to attack you, but oh, by the way, if we are going to launch a, some missiles at you, I'm going to let you know ahead of time. I mean, that, it's just unimaginable. This yeah. man does not have even common sense, much less the kind of, of temperament to have him be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And oh, by the way, you know, the Afghanistan withdrawal and the way in which the uh, the evacuation was handled. That also, you know, he ha- he has some role to play in that too. So I think Millie has to go, and I think it is incumbent, Mona, on those of us uh, who have been grave critics of Trump, um, that we not get sucked in just because you know Biden has said he's going to keep Millie and not saying no. This is this is wrong, um, and and I think I think there ought to be. You know, I I don't have a problem with um, Republicans calling for him to step down. I think he should for the good of the nation.
0: So, Bill, I'm going to have you be a cleanup batter on on this topic. Uh, Let me just ask you, you know, say whatever you like, but let me just ask you to respond to this theory, picking up on what Linda said. You know, you could make the case that Millie as you know so often in these memoirs these washington memoirs people are polishing their own reputations or settling scores or you know so on and it could really be the case that millie's behavior was in part motivated by the fact that yes he had walked across lafayette square with trump in his fatigues and was deeply embarrassed by that by having been used in that way and therefore has been scurrying to to burnish his reputation ever since and po- Possibly
4: very unwisely. So, well, what you just said, Mona, is a little bit more than a theory, because it is a matter of record uh, that Millie felt sandbagged and humiliated by what had transpired in Lafayette Square, uh, and really held Trump responsible for setting him up, uh, and that may have been the, you know, the, uh, the crucial event that sent him off. On a different course, I would say this: uh, General Milley is scheduled to appear before the Senate on, I believe, September 28th. Uh, he will be intensely questioned about this episode. Uh, I think we should reserve judgment until we hear what he has to say uh, in his own account, in his own in his own defense. Uh, I think it was Josh who described this as a kind of a Rorschach test. Uh, that is abs- that is absolutely right. And my reading of the blot is, I must confess, all over the map. <laughs> uh, I can't I can't say that it looks like a butterfly or a pig flying. Uh, when I look at it from one standpoint, I'm appalled. When I look at it from another standpoint, what I see is what Damon called you know, a limit event, a liminal moment uh, when the normal structures of law and constitution break down and there is a kind of national emergency. Uh, I, am, I am inclined to think uh, that General Milley should go at this point just to, just to clear the slate, get a new start. Uh, although the president doesn't appear inclined to go in in that direction, uh, but I think uh, I think we should reserve judgment until until all of the facts are in. Suppose that Milley's darkest fears had been uh, had been realized, and there was a serious movement towards the use of nuclear weapons by a floundering, desperate, angered, and arguably unbalanced president. Uh, In the light of history, how would General Milley be judged if he were seen as Horatio at the bridge, preventing that from happening? Uh, I would say that he would not be judged harshly and should not be judged harshly. One of the problems with these emergency moments is that only history can tell whether actions taken during the emergency were justified. One more comment and I'm done. Whatever happened to the tradition of public statements of disagreement followed by an honorable resignation what I see over and over again in American politics is people staying when they should leave uh, for reasons that I think are less than completely honorable, either because they really can't imagine life without the power of the post that they hold, or they calm themselves into believing that if they left, it would be even worse.
0: Um I, I would just add to that, uh, Bill, um, that there are um, many, not thankfully not too many, but there are situations in which uh, people are forced to do things that they know are legally wrong but morally right, and they choose to do them, and then they take the consequences. Mm-hmm. And there is an honorable tradition of doing that. And I think if Millie had, you know, done what he did, and and then honorably resigned and said, look, I did, I did it. I know it was the wrong thing to do, but I felt that in the grand scheme of things, it was right for the country. I understand that, you know, now I have to resign. That would have made him much more of a sympathetic figure, I think.
4: Well, that's what I meant by an honorable resignation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we're, we're making the same point. All right. Very good. Um, let us turn now to the, um, the president's vaccine mandate. Um, he gave speech uh, recently arguing that uh, that he has the power to uh, require businesses uh, with more than 100 employees to require that their employees be vaccinated or um, be tested weekly. Um, so um, let's start with you, Linda. is this legal?
3: Uh, Well, I was all willing to say, yes, it is, absolutely, the president has that authority. And then I read Bill Galston's uh, column, and he made me have some pause. It's not quite as simple as as we would like to think. Um, My guess is um, that because this is an emergency situation, that the federal government does have the authority. Uh, The question part of it is, You know, whether or not under the Commerce Clause and interstate commerce, whether the president can force employers to pass mandates. Um, I think we have to do something. I think we are in a dire situation right now. I mean, the numbers came out today. One in 500 Americans has died of COVID. And yeah, most of them were old people. Um, but you know, striking numbers of young people also are dying. Besides, of COVID. when old people die, it's bad too. It's Just, bad too. just <laughs> saying, as a seventy-four-year-old, you, you know, I
4: mean,
3: Bill and I, at least, can you know chime in on that? Yeah, but, I'm you know, getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> but I really, um, I really do believe we are in a crisis now, and it is, I think, unforgivable unless you have some real severe medical reason not to get the vaccine that you refuse to get the vaccine and it has very little to do with whether or not you are afraid of dying Uh, as you know as many of the evangelical Christians who are refusing to get it are saying well I don't care about dying I'm going to go to heaven I'm going to go to a better place well okay but you may kill somebody in the process or you may kill many people in the process uh, and they may not want to die because they don't think that, you know, that they're gonna end up in a better place. I think we have to do something. And I think, you know, the president is meeting today with some of the top employers in the country. Uh, I think most of the employer mandates will hold up um, in court. I think employers do have that right. Um, And there are going to be be people who are recalcitrant. But the people that bother the most, it is the public, so-called public servants who are refusing this. Teachers who don't want to get it. Police officers. I mean, Los Angeles now has a huge lawsuit by officers who do not want to be vaccinated. Healthcare workers. My goodness. Did you really believe that when you went to the hospital, that you were going to be you know, dealing with people who were refusing to get the life-saving vaccine um, that as medical professionals, they should know and trust uh, will in fact prevent the spread of this disease. We're, we're in a real crisis. And uh, you know, there were, I don't know, it was close to 2000 years. I think it was about 1,880 or something deaths yesterday from COVID. Um, this isn't going away. And we have to do a better job, and that is going to require mandates because there are a lot of very stubborn people and very selfish people in America, uh, and they are risking a lot of lives. Uh,
0: Bill Galston, I'm coming back to you because you you did write a column about this, and um, and so let's you know talk about um, the legalities. I mean, this was not an executive order. It, he is. Um, Uh, calling upon the authority under the OSHA statute. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but it's not that, I mean, it's not that clear whether, uh, this is something that would pass muster with the
4: courts, right? That's right. Uh, which is not an argument for not trying to do it by the way,
0: Mm -hmm.
4: because, uh, this is a proposed application of settled law whose constitutionality has never been called into question. Uh, you know, as I as I delved into the issue, uh, I discovered that when you're talking about an emergency temporary standard, which is which is what we're talking about, uh there are certain showings that the Department of Labor must be able to make, and if challenged in a court of law to the effect uh, that the danger is quote unquote, grave. Uh, number one, number two, uh, that the that the proposed remedy to the grave danger is is appropriate uh, in scope and scale and likely to be effective. And number three, when you're dealing with employers, uh, that they have the means and the capability of complying with the requirement, whatever it may be. Uh, this would be a new application of the law, uh, and it is, for that reason, inherently uncertain how courts, uh, when they're called upon to review this application, are are going to come down. Uh, I happen to believe that Biden was right to take this a step, take this step. Uh, I agree with Linda on, on that point. Uh, and it's also pretty clear to me that a majority of the American people want him to take some step of this sort. Uh, there was a survey that came out this morning, a political morning consult survey that questioned Americans individually, uh, you know, about every individual element of the president's proposed strategy and there was clear majority support for each and every one. Uh, I also also want to make a broader point. Uh, And that is that the leadership of the Republican Party has based its generic resistance to things of this sort on a conception of freedom that cannot be defended. It is sort of hyper-libertarianism. I can do whatever I want. Uh, Who are you to tell me what to do? And the classic answer to that question is that you are free to do things that concern only your well-being. Whether you're completely free to do, do those things is an interesting question. Uh, But you're free to you're free to do what you want in those circumstances. But when your conduct seriously implicates the well-being of others, your liberty runs out. Uh, And I don't know what part of that simple argument is eluding the leaders, many governors, unfortunately, of today's Republican party? Do they genuinely believe that it doesn't matter whether your conduct harms other people? I can't believe that. Or are they just unwilling to face that simple fact? Uh,
0: Bill, in your column, you referenced the 1905 case, Jacobson v. Massachusetts, where a a man refused to get inoculated against smallpox and I thought you'd be amused that uh, to know that he, in addition to claiming that it violated his his uh, due process rights to bodily integrity which was what you just mentioned. He also claimed that the mandate amounted to the imposition of paganism. Uh, He said, can the free citizen of Massachusetts who is not yet a pagan nor an idolater be compelled to undergo this rise and to participate in this new, no revived form of worship of the sacred cow. Well, anyway, the Supreme court went against him 77
4: to (laughs) two. (laughs) Um, But um, well, let me just, let me just say Mona, uh, my column, and I, ch- I had to negotiate with my editor over this, reproduced uh, two long sections from Justice John Marshall Harlan's uh, majority uh, majority decision, and the second of those sections, having to do with limits on individual liberty and the justification for those limits, ought to be bronzed <laughs> uh, and and displayed on plaques everywhere around the country. It is the undeniable moral truth of the situation. And why so much of the country is unable to see that simply escapes me. Okay. Well, I think Josh
0: Kraushauer can can shed some light on this. Josh, you also had a column about this and you're much more skeptical about the vaccine mandate. So why don't you explain that?
2: Yeah, and I think it's important to distinguish between the different mandates from a political perspective. I think support for making sure teachers and faculty are mandated to have vaccines in public schools, that's an easy one. You know, nursing homes, public health centers that rely on Medicaid, Medicare funding, that's an easy one that gets broad support. But I think politically speaking, Biden turned the support for vaccines that you see in every poll and even, you know, support for mandates, broadly speaking, in, in these narrow areas where there is a a, a, a significant uh, benefit or there's a benefit no matter what, but the, the ones where you have the most public support, um, he had a winning issue pointing out the intransigence of, of these conservative governors in Florida, Ron DeSantis and Texas uh, with, with Abbott, uh, really, you know, preventing jurisdictions from uh, implementing mask mandates in schools, doing things that have widespread public support. That was a winning issue for President Biden. And and it was gaining public frankly, the the, the rising case counts down south and in other parts of the country. We're actually getting these these holdouts, some of these holdouts vaccinated. The the vaccine rate has gone up significantly in the last uh, few weeks or so. I, I think what this what the Biden speech and, and, and the mandates do, especially the employer mandate that we've been discussing on the legal side, is it gives Republicans a, a Brought, you know, an argument about threatening the livelihood, the economic livelihood of vaccine resistors, and it turned. And then, when you look at the polling about the specific economic, ma- or the, sorry, the, the employment mandate is much receives much smaller support than the other mandates as part of the plan. And uh, you, there was a Quinnipiac poll for the first time showing uh, majority opposition uh, to the, the overall plan, the overall package of mandates when put together from from President Biden. And I think one of the more interesting things as a political analyst is you see these weird breakdowns where about 30 percent of, of, of uh, Republicans, college educated Republicans in particular, are actually very much supportive of, of mandates to travel. I think they they care about their, their health. They, 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 would, they would rather trade, um, you know, the, the freedom that they would get as part of a vaccine mandate package uh, in exchange for for some of the burdens that 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 others would face. But you also see on the Democratic side significantly disproportionate opposition among some core parts of the Democratic base, uh, the Gen Zers, the African-Americans, even even Hispanics. And when I look at this issue, it it seems to be more of a class issue than a partisan issue. Uh, We're very tribal – partisan uh, country right now and you don't see many issues that break that partisan divide but you you are seeing that on this issue of mandates you're, you're seeing upscale suburban Republicans much more supportive of uh, the mandates and you even see you know even see them supportive of Democrats and on the Democratic side you're seeing you know 45 50 percent opposition from groups that vote Democratic by a two to one or, or much greater margin. So I think that's very notable. And that's that's a worry, I think, that the White House needs to pay attention to, that some of their base is not uh, hugely enthusiastic about, about the plan. And, and the other thing is, I think, you know, Biden, broadly speaking, has done a, a a poor job of sort of explaining the risks. And there was a muddle of messaging when the Delta variants began to spread. And it, it created a legitimate fear that, Maybe the vaccines don't work as well as, as advertised. Maybe if you're vaccinated, you have a real risk, a high risk of getting the, a serious case of COVID. We now have a lot of data um, about the efficacy of the vaccines, even in the Delta phase of the pandemic. And I think it was David Leonhardt of the New York Times that pegged the, the, the risk of even contracting COVID, just getting a COVID positive test for a vaccinated person at one in 10,000. I think Biden need to give a little bit of a, a nothing to fear, but fear itself speech for the vaccinated public who are understandably anxious, understandably worried. Um, the, the fear that is sort of a disconnect of the, the, the areas of the country that have the most spread are the ones who are not taking any common sense precautions to, to protect themselves from COVID. The parts of the country that have the lowest spread, D.C. areas, I think the, the D.C. metro area has the lowest spread of any big metropolitan region. You're seeing very... Uh, significant regulations, overarching regulations that may not be necessary given the context. And certainly the vaccinated Americans are much more worried than the unvaccinated Americans, which, which is sort of politically upside down. So I, I think Biden really needed to give some carrots along with the sticks in his speech to tell vaccinated Americans that, you know, you, you be cautious, but but be, you know, we don't need to worry uh, excessively about this. And I think that the worry is what's driving the political uh, tumble in, in Biden's job approval rating.
0: Interesting. Okay. Um, Damon, I'm speaking of carrots. Uh, I'd like to uh, draw attention to a piece that Jonathan Rauch uh, wrote in Persuasion, where he said there are alternatives. You know, he's worried that a mandate like this will really um, cause a backlash, get people's backs up, and uh, that there are alternatives. And he cited a proposal from Robert Lytton, who is, I think, one of Bill's colleagues at uh, Brookings. Who um, suggested that we pay people? Now there have been efforts to pay people uh, for uh, getting the vaccine, but but Litton says we should we should increase it a lot. Pay everybody who gets the vaccine thousand um, dollars, and uh, but but they only get half when they get the shot. They get the other half when eighty uh, percent of the population has been vaccinated so that this encourages people to get their friends and neighbors and family and so forth uh, to get the shot. And he says, you don't you don't penalize the people who did everything right and got inoculated right away. They also get the money, uh, just like uh, those we're trying to encourage now. I, I found that interesting. I mean, apparently it would cost something like 270 billion dollars, but <laughs> first of all, who cares about money these days? No, no, actually it's it, it'd be less than the, than what we would uh, we would lose by the economy being uh, being hampered by continue the continuation of uh of COVID.
1: So what do you make of that? Well you know these days billions is just pocket change. So that, that sounds that sounds very reasonable to me. No. No, I, I like that idea. I've been I've been supportive of the idea of paying people to get vaccinated. I worry a little bit that All of the tens of millions of Americans who got vaccinated without getting a check will then turn around and feel a little bit like they were suckers, like, hey, I should have waited for my money. But No, no, no. It it included that. Oh, really? So, so, So I'd get a check for having gotten vaccinated back in April? Yes. All oh, right. and yes. now I really support this. No, I'm not just kidding. <laughs> no, I, I'm kidding. But um, no, I think it's a good idea. And I, I actually, I, I the, not a lot of beg to differing around here. I agree with what pretty much everyone has said. I very much agree with Josh's comments, uh, as well as the ones you quoted from uh, Jonathan Rausch. This is a good company to be in. But in general, I mean, I'm not against on principle mandates in the case as uh, as Bill's very good column, uh, reiterated the arguments about, Uh, the public good and how in when you're dealing with a public health crisis, your freedom is is going to be more limited because your ordinary everyday actions are going to impact the health of your fellow citizens more than it does when everybody's healthy. And so you should expect that there might be some temporary constriction of freedom for the good of all. That's elementary political theory, and so I'm all in favor of that, and it's correct. However, prudentially speaking, when it comes to the kind of practical judgment that a politician has to use in having the best possible result. I, I don't really think that the employee mandate is a great idea. Now, it's fine for the federal government to mandate that employees of the federal government have to uh get uh, vaccinated that's fairly straightforward because they're employees of the guy who runs the executive branch so great do that but i i uh, you know when it comes to things like um you know why not Go first with uh, an air travel mandate that you have to be vaccinated to travel on a plane. We have the FAA that already regulates air traffic to a great degree, and more than your average uh, privately run uh, company is through OSHA. And so, I think it's a real stretch uh, to 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 go that route to actually say, "I this is such um, this is such an emergency that I." president I'm going to attempt to greatly expand the regulatory power of the federal government into private businesses A- again can it be done will judges in the court of the Supreme Court eventually say this is allowable yeah maybe but we all know it's going to get blocked and then it's not going to be decided until God for you know knock on wood uh, God willing uh, we're finally through the worst of this and it won't really matter as much anymore so I don't again, Exactly understand uh, if if the goal for Biden is to increase vaccination as quickly as possible. This doesn't strike me as necessarily the wisest approach. All right, excellent,
0: um, Bill. Did you want to say one word?
4: Yeah. I just have to say, uh, you know, in a beg to differ spirit, that I'm I'm a little bit surprised. Uh, you know the the principle that government can mandate vaccines is very clearly established in American law. Uh, Not the federal government, though, Bill. Well, that's okay, But, you know, but that's not the that's not the argument that I've heard. Uh, If it's. If it's unwise for the federal government to mandate it, then it would seem on prudential grounds that it's equally unwise for the states to do it. And I do think, and I think my column has been misconstrued, uh, that the federal government does have the authority to do it. Uh, And the the question is whether the law extends as far as this particular application of it. Uh, I think it does, but as I said, the the courts will determine it, but... I have to say uh, that I am opposed to the idea of paying people to do what they clearly ought to do, flatly opposed to it. Uh, And I don't know what has happened, and maybe I'm revealing my age here, to the idea of civic duty, but I am not going to be critical of Biden uh, for re-raising that issue and relying on it. And when he talked about frustration and impatience, I said, right on. Uh, How can can this make people's backs get up more than they already are? At some point, uh, you simply have to say to people, uh, you know, this is what it means to be a citizen, and you're going to do this whether you like it or not.
0: Well, um, that I really do beg to differ with that because uh, because I think that uh, when there is an alternative to outright coercion uh, that could work, and when you're dealing with an emergency, uh, I think it's better not to use coercion. Because you said, how could people's backs get up more than they already are? Easily, uh, a, a federal mandate is exactly the sort of thing that will that will inflame uh, these these. People who, who I agree with you are are being bad citizens by not doing what they ought to do. But you have to take the world as you find it, not as you want it to be. And we want desperately to get this uh, this this disease under control. And so I think other methods might work better. But all right, we have now run long, and we need to move to our highlight or low light
3: of the week. And so I will start with Linda. All right. I am going to recommend an article in Commentary Magazine, uh, the September issue. It's written by Paul McHugh, who is University Distinguished Service Professor of Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins, and also by uh, Gerard F. Bradley, who's a professor of law at Notre Dame. The article is entitled, Uninformed Consent, the Transgender Crisis. And uh, it is all about what is happening in America that I think we are going to look back on in 20 years in absolute horror. And that is parents, uh, and in some instances even without parents, children being subjected to artificial hormones to uh, to block their entry into puberty and in some cases, allowing plastic surgery to take place to, in uh, Paul McHugh's words and uh, Gerard Bradley's words, mutilate the bodies of young people. I will not um, argue that if you're 21 years of, of age or older and you decide that you want to to become um, physically more uh, like the opposite sex uh, into which you were born, uh, that you have the right to do so. But the idea that children are now uh, having this done because, you know, at 10 years of age, a girl decides she's a tomboy and and likes to play, you know, with guns and likes to, you know, shoot hoops and all that sort of thing. And she's going to be given hormones to make sure that she does not develop a woman's body. I think this is crazy. And I think there are not enough people who are willing to come out and shove back on this. And I think the medical profession, the AMA in particular, has been disgraceful on this. And I think 20 years from now, when some of these children uh, are adults and discover that they are infertile because of the uh, treatments they received as children, I think we're going to see, as as, uh, McHugh and Bradley suggest, a flurry of lawsuits, and I think we are going to look back and wonder what, what ever possessed us to think this was a good thing.
0: Uh, Linda, let me just add, I, I agree, and I think there's going to, the, one of the aspects of this that has not gotten very much attention, and I'm puzzled as to why it hasn't, but I think I know because people are afraid to touch it. It's like, a you know, the third rail. But uh, many of the children who present as transgender um, are actually homosexual. Yes. And will grow right. up to be right. attracted to the same sex. Right. And they are being shuttled into this, this new trendy identity as trans when in fact they're really just gay. Yeah, I know. And, you know, and so that's another aspect of this that people are not apparently willing to talk about. Anyway, but, it's uh, a good I'm critical. glad you raised it. It's glad you raised pickle.
1: it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Damon Linker. Um well last week uh, on Beg to Differ uh, Bill Galston's choice was to highlight uh, the upcoming German election uh and these somewhat surprising uh polling showing that the Uh, center-left SPD, or Social Democratic Party, seems to have revived itself, along with the Green Party versus the center-right Christian Democratic Party, which seemed to be in a kind of downward spiral. Uh, Today, I'd like to uh, highlight uh, news from an upcoming election uh, in the Other largest country in the EU, which is France, um, where things are going rather differently. Um, uh, Whereas in Germany, uh, the far right uh, AfD party, uh, the alternative for Germany party, uh, these days is running about 10, 11 percent in the polls. Uh, in France, you have uh, National Rally Party by uh, Le Pen as the the main candidate, uh, has been running around 25%. Uh, she sunk down to around 20 or a little below uh, recently, but that's in large part because Eric Zemmour, who is a kind of, uh, I don't know, a, a sort of roughly analogous to a Tucker Carlson type in France, although he's... Uh, Better educated and more literate and uh, has written a number of very, uh, very stridently anti-immigrant books, very hostile to the EU. Um, He looks likely to very shortly jump into the race. Uh, and already is now polling at about 10 percent. So if you put Le Pen uh, and Zamour uh, together, that equals roughly 30 percent of the French electorate prepared to vote for what is uh, impossible to describe as anything other than the far right. That leaves uh, Emmanuel Macron, the centrist uh, uh, current uh, president, uh, pulling at about 25 percent. That's actually a kind of soft 25. He sort of seems to be floating between about 23 and 25 percent. This will almost certainly uh, send the election into a second round, which is the way they do it there, uh, leading probably Macron to go up against uh, Le Pen, uh, as happened. The last time there was an election there, I have to assume that the same kind of dynamic will happen where the non Le Pen uh, voters will sort of gravitate to Macron and push him over the top. But still, it is somewhat unnerving to think that a country as important in the EU and in uh, the world system uh, is running around with a pretty solid 30% of the country prepared to vote for the far right.
4: Okay, Bill Galston. I'm going to do something uh, I almost never do. Uh, and that is, you know, talk about a, a work of fiction as my highlight. Uh, I am rapidly coming to the conclusion uh, that uh, a man by the name of Colm Toybean may be the finest novelist now writing. Uh, I am about uh, a third of the way through his latest called The Magician, which is an imaginative reconstruction from the inside of Thomas Mann's life. Uh, and it is, I think, a book for the ages, and it's not the first one uh, that Mr. Toybean has written.
3: By the way, he wrote a wonderful book called Brooklyn, which also got made uh, into uh, a wonderful movie about the Irish immigrant experience.
0: I, I saw that movie. It was wonderful. And the yeah. book was great. Uh, I, okay. Well, great. Thanks, Bill. Bill, you're branching out. This is great. Um, next week, we'll do movie recommendations. <laughs>
2: um, okay. Josh Kraushaar. I'll go back to domestic politics for the, the highlight of the week. And point out uh, Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema is going to be a potential model of the future for centrists, for pragmatists, um, taking an outspoken position on a lot of Biden's positions, urging him to pare back the spending in the upcoming reconciliation social welfare bill and really like setting the, the, the direction along with Joe Manchin, of course, uh, of, of, of the Biden administration in a more moderate direction. Uh, she's not up for re-election until 2024 but she uh, even in her first campaign won an unusually high number of republicans uh, to support her and building a, a bipartisan majority of about 50% in, in that election uh, she's given some cover to more quietly moderate senators and lawmakers who don't want to stick their neck out as much for fear of a backlash but if she wins in 2024 and she continues that dynamic of winning not by rallying the base but actually building uh, a broad-based moderate uh, coalition of support it may give uh, confidence and, and may give cover to a lot of other democrats to show that that's another way of winning elections especially in swing states Susan Collins is really the uh, last guy standing on, last woman standing, last lawmaker standing on the Republican side that's been able to build that kind of bipartisan coalition to, to win elections. Joe Manchin also on the on the Democratic side winning in West Virginia. Um, cinema, the, the numbers of, of, of senators that win support from the other side that can actually win, uh, bipartisan moderate majorities are declining, but cinema may actually turn around that trend if she can win reelection using the traffic she has in her first, uh, years
0: in office. Interesting. She also, let's face it, has the best fashion sense of anybody <laughs> in the Senate. <laughs>
2: Absolutely.
0: Yes. And next All week right. we
3: talk about fashion. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. I would like to draw attention to a cover story from The Economist magazine. Well, they actually call themselves a newspaper, but to us it looks like a magazine. Um, it was called The Threat from the Illiberal Left. And, um, they made a point in this piece that uh, really spoke to me. They said, you know, these these illiberal uh, noises and, and efforts that are coming from the left now, from the progressive left, are really worrisome. But there are a lot of us in the center who don't, you know, who hesitate to call them out exactly because we don't want to sound like Tucker Carlson, you know, and, uh, or some of the more dishonest people on the right. But nevertheless, the threat uh, to free speech, for example, is, is real and severe coming from the progressives. And and here's just one quote from this piece It said, um, you know, it talks about how traditional, um, liberals, small L liberals, uh, believe in free speech, but Quote, illiberal progressives think that equity requires the field to be tilted against those who are privileged and reactionary. That means restricting their freedom of speech, using a caste system of victimhood, in which those on top must defer to those with a greater claim to restorative justice. It also involves making an example of supposed reactionaries by punishing them when they say something that is taken to make someone who is less privileged feel unsafe. And, uh, and then they, they have this paragraph, which I will also just quote. Aspects of liberalism go against the grain of human nature. It requires you to defend your opponent's right to speak even when you know they are wrong. You must be willing to question your own deepest beliefs. Businesses must not be sheltered from the gales of creative destruction. Your loved ones must advance on merit alone, even if all your instincts are to bend the rules for them. You must accept the victory of your enemies at the ballot box, even if you think they will bring the country to ruin." So that's a good summation of, um, of what is required for a liberal republic to thrive. And uh, it's what we have to constantly work to preserve and, and fight the extremes at both ends. It's my little homily for today. So with that, I want to thank you all for listening. I want to thank Josh for joining us. And we will return next week as every week.